Welcome to Critical Dialogues. I'm Christine Antaya, and with me as always is Matthew Rana. For this episode, we talked with the artist Anne Böttcher. Anne was born in 1973 in the village of Brusaholm in southern Sweden. She studied at Konstfack in Stockholm and at Malmö Art Academy, where she received her master's degree in 2003. She's represented by Galerie Nordenhake in Stockholm. Anne just opened a big exhibition at Malmö Konsthall featuring works from the past 20 years, including large textile works and her well-known drawings of spruces. A smaller version of the Malmö exhibition was shown at Bollnisch Konsthall in Stockholm earlier this year. She has also exhibited at Malmö Konstmuseum, Vandalorum, Index and Moderna Museum. She's participated in group exhibitions at venues including He Art Museum in Shunday in China, Konsthall Stavanger, Lunds Konsthall, Malmö Konstmuseum, Magasin 3, Vuk Konsthalle in Vienna and Konsthall Charlottenburg and PS1 MoMA. In this conversation, Anne reflects on doing a mid-career survey exhibition, drawing's status as a minor practice, and art's potential to intervene in history. Without further ado, here's our dialogue with Anne Butcher. So hi Anne, hi. welcome to our studio. We're very happy that you could um, be with us today. We always start by asking our our guests um, how they would describe the art scene in Malmo and what it's like working as an artist in Malmo. Describing the art scene. Um, and for me, since I lived here almost 20 years now, I graduated from Malmo Art Academy in 2003. And I've been here, but on and off to other places. In a way, it was sort of, um, there were more galleries when I graduated, younger galleries, uh, older galleries. Um, we had Elastic, uh, Magnus Åkerlund, Johan Berggren. So I think it's sad in a way that there's no, that it's so hard to run a gallery here. Um, because it's, I mean, there's the art scene can be so much more than galleries, obviously. But uh, it's nice too that they can be part of it. Um, and I think I like that it's so many artists who stays put here after their education. Yeah. And a lot of artists that seem to move here, especially maybe from Norway. There's a lot of Swedish artists who go there, but also no- Norwegian artists and Danish artists. Um, no, and I, I like Malmö. Uh, it's nice to work here. Uh, it's it can be silent here. Um, I wouldn't say. Um, I've been looking for another word than boring because that's not really. <laughs> <laughs> but if you use it in a positive term, boring as in a positive term, because um, in I used to live in Stockholm. I went to Konstfack first, the academy there, one of the academies. And it's so many inputs from the gallery scene, from the artist, from um, from everything else. And here in Malmö, you have everything, even though it's not in smaller doses. You have it, so it's. Uh, I think it gives you a lot of time to work, which is nice. 
And that's also why I had, I was an exchange student from Construct to Malmö Art Academy. <laughs> so I went to San Francisco and Chicago, Frankfurt, <laughs> I went to Malmö. But as did Runo Lagomarsini, he came from Valand and I came from Construct the same year. Um, so, and I thought that it was really nice to come to Malmö Art Academy, which had been... Uh, everyone looked about it as a super theoretical school at that time that was too much and it um, shaped the students. But for me, it was totally different. I actually felt like you really got time uh, to go into your work in a different way and you were allowed to do that. And uh, that's why I transferred and stayed there. Mm. Took my master. It must, I mean, it must be quite special now having this big exhibition at, at Malmö Konsthall, like the city where you've lived and worked for 20 years. Yes. It's always easier to have an ex- exhibition further away. As further away um, as possible, it's it's easier, I think. Um, but uh, it hasn't been as hard as, as, as I thought. It has been more fun than I thought. Um, it's been great to work with Mats. Then Angela, that has been the project leader there. Um, I love the building. Uh, that was a bit hard in the beginning, I thought. I, I, I thought it would be the biggest obstacle to try to handle since it's such great architecture and has such history. And how to put in a show there to make that work without... Um, to, w- to make architecture and the show work in the same way. I mean, you've, you've engaged a lot with kind of modernist architectural spaces before. And so I'm just kind of curious, what, what are some of the challenges that this uh, Klaus Anthelm, is that that's how you say it? I Klaus think so, Anthelm, yeah. Um, that this building sort of presents? Um, I don't think I've thought in those terms as um, modernistic architecture in the sense of architecture because that I don't have that much experience of I think mm-hmm. what interested me before um, or have interested me I think has to do with um, how it was um, used in the for example the buildings of the sanatoriums and how it started with the Corbusier his uh, big open white rooms and buildings uh, almost where the outside move in you have Alvar Alto a bit after him um, the Finnish architect of course and his uh, famous uh, sanatoria Paimo um, which was located in the pine forest and um, he used uh, the color yellow a color yellow that uh, evoked the feeling of the sun and warmth that followed in the corridors and into patients' rooms um, and how colors in that sense could give a feeling of, for the healing and he put the patients outside uh, on these laying chairs. Um, so I think that has been my interest in architecture. Mm. In that sense you can also at this time, it was, all, it was so many things you had the psychoanalysis where you got into the people mind people people's minds um and what was private now and you had um, 
dimension of the x-ray you could see inside the body and in the sanatoriums who were there were so many sanatoriums in Scandinavia and in Sweden it started already like 1903 I think one of the first ones was in Sweden out with the patients in with nature in forms of uh, spruces and logs and big windows so it's, re it's really more the kind of ideological freight of certain kind of uh, architectural devices. Yes, Yeah. absolutely. Sort of how, how those kinds of, those devices also do extend to these sort of um, kind of iconic uh, buildings, you know, mm. like art and white cubes. Of course, Mal McCall's Tullus also uh, has a lot of natural light and big windows and mm. uh, it's like a big open space. Yes. Um, that was a thing that we thought a lot about because if you make a show and in my show there was there's a lot of uh, works on loan and then comes a lot of restrictions uh, especially in my case since there's a lot of drawings uh, institution have very high demands on the looks the light uh, so they can be as low as 50 or 75 looks which is very dark and then you have this uh, constal as malme constal which is so light and so much air um, so at first we thought we had to cover all the windows um, but then we could have um, you can take the curtains down halfway so we have like a stripe of air that was that we were able to have open and i think it's so nice uh, also to have it for the big textile wall tapestry that hangs there uh, because i think that some works really need to have a contention context with outside and that work which has to do with a, a former psychiatric hospital maybe we talk more about that later but that has also I've been interested in different kinds of institutions where the sanatoria was one of them uh, that was the first uh, collaboration I had with Mats Schoenstedt I made a show at Index in Stockholm 2007 which were about the sanatoriums um, and then we've made an um, outside structure, which is um, sort of the same dimensions as they had in the early 1900s and 1930s. Um, and they always were in the forest. We built such one and had it in the courtyard of Index in Stockholm. And um, we really wanted to do it here. Um, but it wasn't space either. I inside and was impossible outside um, but <laughs> so but that part where the big tapers tapestries is the part for a sort of um, institutions uh, for them mental mind if you can say it like that it's a psychiatric hospitals a sanatorium um. I mean this the exhibition can be described I guess as kind of like a mid-career survey covering like 20 years of, of your practice but there is also like a striking continuity like you know it isn't easy to sort of follow a chronological kind of development if that's what what a viewer would be would be looking for but can you still see like ways that you have changed as an artist in, in the past decades mm. i think a lot of the themes like almost all of them have been there from the beginning. Um, and that's probably why it's taking, why a lot of the techniques or 
motives and symbols have stuck with me all these years because it's so many things that I've been want wanted to comment on. But of course, if you, when I was invited first to Bonnier's Konstal, which was a smaller and previous version of this one, uh, I heard that some people were a bit um, surprised uh, that I would get such a big space because I'm still considered with doing quite small drawings. Mm. And for some reason in my head, <laughs> I was also there a bit like I almost said no to having the show there because I never imagined that I could fill it. And then we ended up um, having to exclude a lot of works. Um, but the, so the works have gotten so much bigger, other materials. And it hasn't been a, like, yeah, weaving and textile, I guess have been like, um, the textile part was like a natural um, development of, uh, because I started doing that on my own time and then it translated into arts. But then it's been a lot of material and techniques that I consciously, uh, consciously didn't really think I really want to work with this one. But I think for me at least, uh, it's more and more um, the material or the technique chooses you, uh, especially when you're interested in something and sometimes other people are involved, dead or alive. Uh, you're trying to find a story through other stories and then different kinds of objects come in your way and it's obvious that you have to work with them and they can have any shape or form. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that becomes quite clear in the exhibition that there are encounters or people or places that become important and sort of propel you further in your practice. Um, but when you were when you were younger, I mean, before you went to art school, was there someone um, or something in your in your youth that made you realize that you could become an artist? Not really in that sense. Um, I've always been drawing. One of those persons that's always been drawing and painting. So that's been natural. But it's no one in my family that has gone to yeah, university or art schools. And uh, I always, I loved school. I thought it was really fun. So I knew I wanted to do that. And in my I didn't really understand what it could be like to be an artist. More this romantic notion of uh, painting late nights. <laughs> and but it, so it was quite late when I realized that you can combine what you, uh, let's say academia uh, or working like a journalist or whatever, but in visually. Uh, and that was quite mind blowing in the beginning. And uh, so that's sort of how it started. You mentioned also when we saw your exhibition the other day that when you started drawing, not many artists were really drawing as like their main their main practice, but that that has has also changed since then yeah. um, a little bit. I mean, what is, I mean, now you talked about drawing as a, as a child, but I mean, has your relationship to drawing changed? Yeah, uh, if I look back, I mean, the drawings of children, I think, 
are very narrative and maybe dealing with what you think of or people or um, and of course it's been like that in the arts but it has been a very meditative um, thing for me to do and it really started out like that because my three first drawing works are called pauses one two and three and uh, they started like that in between all these courses that you are um, offered as a student with performance and video and uh, where I felt a bit lost and by doing these drawings who which were portraits of forests of um, artists that I found um, had images that reminded me of places I've been to maybe my childhood where I came from and it could be a painting of Caspar David Friedrich, Robert Adams, a clear cut from Oregon in the 1970s or 80s and uh, Watkins uh, an image of Yosemite and even those are places that I hadn't been to they really reminded me of specific places at home so I started drawing them and it was almost like I was scanning the picture uh, leaning my forehead in my hand very intimate and since they weren't really art and it wasn't important that I would show them I didn't think of showing them I didn't show them to anyone in the beginning uh, they were sort of in-betweens um, so I just worked with them until yeah at different like pauses and then of course uh, it developed from there when you if you read landscape and memory which I read quite early by Simon Sharma I mean and I guess the content is uh, a beautiful landscape is just not a beautiful landscape there's so much that has taken place there and when you dwell into that I mean there's so much to uh, explore mm. has the reception of, of the drawings changed over the years from I mean others you mean yeah I mean not the, the drawing drawings themselves but also just like having drawing as your main practice um, and maybe that um, I don't know if I really answer your question now but I think that people still perceive that uh, my practice is drawings and some also prefer the drawings. If I sell works, I want to buy the drawings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's still quite conform that way. Um, even though if I make um, other works, um, I think it's still about the same thing. But I think that uh, now drawing is a, a, me a media that is quite uh, natural for a lot of artists and um, people looking at it which is nice because in the beginning when I started doing them they were perceived as a, a lot of people were like oh finally someone who knows their handicraft <laughs> uh, like the technique and the only thing that hinted to what I was interested in was the title and but the title still was just the tip of the iceberg and was so much more that it could be even though I th think that some titles were quite like pointing through a German forest that says quite a lot. Mm. Um, I think. But you think, yeah, people 
maybe didn't read the title or no didn't really so. no and of course you can't really you can't control that either uh, i think now at malme konstal because there are a lot of text-based works some texts that i incorporate as works together with the works or some work texts that are explanatory um, but i know it's a lot of information to take in especially when you gather 20 years and and text has been quite a big part of your practice so i really don't demand that <laughs> you should go read everything and uh, i know that a lot of people go in there and you really look visually mm. also at the text like textiles and as you said matthew which i thought about and uh, was really nice uh, when we saw looked at the transit portal which is a textile work of a hanging woven mat and a crocheted round one and when you first saw it for you it was like um what do you call it right like the rings of a tree trunk yeah yeah and of course it is and of course that's a natural reading for <laughs> an artist that's been working with trees for 20 years and i like that yeah, I mean, like even I mean, even your as you said, like even the textile works can be admired on a craft level, like like the drawings. Mm. Um. Still, there are s the ones that I make myself. Um, there's really, really, really simple techniques, but also I, I I like them, and that's why I started doing them because they were sort of the original <laughs> when it comes to Scandinavian weaving. Uh, that these peasant women started with you know, recycling clothes and everything that couldn't be used anymore. So that's why I stuck with them. But technically, or, hand, uh, or in terms of handicraft, I like a lot of things like this. If, um, so I really admire real weavers, who you know, the techniques. And But I still get, uh, if I want to do something more elaborate, there's help, mm. which I was an always, um, often have um, received in form of collaborations with uh, HV Studio eller HV Atelier. They have Friends of Handicraft in Stockholm. It's a really old organization that works with artists since 1879. Um, the, the earliest work in the show um, is from 2003, I think. The Yosemite work, is it? Um, it was my graduation show, but... Uh, the, a lot of the drawings started earlier. I started doing them at Konstfak. Uh, some of the earliest are from 2000. Oh, okay. I think it's the second year of uh, my BA. And uh, yeah. So the drawings were a little bit before that, but then my graduation show, 2003, uh, is uh, this slideshow of Yosemite National Park which was, we didn't have uh, space for it at Bonniers in Stockholm earlier this year. Uh, and uh, part of me was a bit relieved. It felt, but can I show um, a work that I did in school? Can that still be considered as an artwork? <laughs> but of course the drawings are, I don't, um, so, and it was really fun for me to revisit it. I like it. So you, you think it fits in nicely with the, yeah, it does. It, yeah. it does, because there's so many works. Uh, of course, this has been very clear to me then. I knew it before, but really clear that um, there's so many works that um, um, deal with uh, identity, nationality, 
eller nationalism, sorry, uh, through nature and how you um, reflect yourself or a country reflects itself through its nature. As where Sweden has a bit um, a more low-key, less dramatic approach, I think. Of course, we have the Romantic era as well. Um, but it will also have this allemansrätten. You go into the forest by yourself, it's private. And then you have these uh, um, works that I made about Germany and America, and also recently China, where nature is really used in nationalistic political aspects. So it makes sense. You know, in recent years, there has been a kind of reckoning with Swedish history uh, in the arts, um, work that deals with sort of suppressed or repressed histories having to do with, for example, Sweden's role in the transatlantic slave trade, um, the colonization of Sápmi. Um, and your work also engages these difficult histories, uh, mm. not the same histories, but different, yeah. uh, equally difficult histories. Um, for instance, uh, your public artwork in the former Vipaholm Hospital, mm. um, but also in the Sweden series, uh, parts of which, as you just alluded to, sort of trouble narratives around Sweden's uh, neutrality during the Second World War. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, to what extent would you say that these works are an attempt to kind of intervene or rewrite uh, the historical record? Um, if art can take a part of um, such an important part, it would be amazing. I don't know if art can... Um, no, now I'm not being just to the heart. <laughs> uh, um, but of course, it's an, uh, one work that I did between 2003 and 2005. It could have gone on longer, but I was offered to have an exhibition at the Moderna Museet. Um, they had this, uh, it's the first at Moderna, where they invited artists to do show a work. Um, and then I had worked quite a long time with them um, going through archives of the big museums, but also libraries, um, art museum, but also the Nordic museum. Um, and really see how far you can go into a, a history, the history of Yassi's tree that I've been portraying for a long time, or already had then, uh, the spruce. And uh, so it's a timeline from 1600 till today, basically, which looks through its history and how it came to be a, like a sign or a symbol for what Sweden can stand for or Swedish people. And uh, there's different branches and categories which one deals with nationalism. And of course, then it, there it starts with nat the national romantic era, these uh, painters. We have one in Sweden, Marcus Larsson, which was um, later taken on of the Swedish nationalists as a real Swedish artist. Um, and um, so I got more into researching about um, the Swedish nationalistic parties. There were quite a lot of them, but they couldn't unite. Uh, they argued, fell apart, uh, 
So there were a lot of different ones popping up, which was good because otherwise if there would have been one party, they would have a lot more say. And they, ma they made these um, holiday cards, you can call them, um, which had basically the same motives over and over again. It was a spruce tree, the rune stones and the swastika. The, and one of those postcards uh, we made a carpet out of because I was uh, did a, I was took part of an exhibition at Vanos, a sculpture park here in, in Skåne, which dealt with monuments and uh, memorials. And I thought that was the perfect opportunity to be able to realize the work that I have been thinking about a long time. So the motive is this. Um, postcard where there are two black uh, silhouettes of spruces standing in front of a forest lake and uh, the sun get up, getting up or getting down uh, in form of, of a swastika. So we, I say we, uh, I did it in collaboration with this Handarbetets Vänner, the Friends of Handicraft, and um, the idea was we wove it, or not, um, you, you tie these, uh, uh, you tied it you tie knots in the technique of ria, uh, the long pile rug, but in the technique of uh, it's called half flossa. It uh, it's it's a technique where you leave part of the warp uh, uh, open, so it becomes like a non-pattern, which of course is a pattern. So the swastika was left out, as it was something you don't want to deal with this history anymore, and the piles, the yarns. I played with the idea that they had been la laying there since the 1930s and uh, been grown so long, like a, like a scrubby forest almost. So you didn't see the motif anymore. And it wasn't, and, uh, wasn't until today where you entangle the yarns, almost like a personal archaeological excavation and history reveals itself. Uh, itself. And of course, you, this can be a way of looking of uh, Sweden and its so-called neutrality that Sweden was very proud of for a very long time. And then um, um, exposing all these uh, parts that uh, have hasn't been um, looked upon so much. I mean, would you say, is it fair to say then that engaging these histories is perhaps more a way of sort of processing a kind of trauma or sort of working toward a reconciliation um when it comes to the carpet and the swastika and sweden's neutrality of course it can be interpreted like that but it's um yeah national trauma but when it comes to personal traumas I think uh, on that level, level, it's been more like in the recent works where I worked on my own German history and my German family's history, because that has been closer. And that's it. And the reason why I spent 20 years working on the German history and what happened in the 1930s is because I'm half German. And it feels like all the works I've done until now has just been like a preparation of uh, uh, 
it's like it's been part one and maybe it's time for part two <laughs> to dive into it more personal on a more personal level i am curious i mean how do you see these kind of inquiries into identity swedish and and german um how do you see these inquiries in relation to like the present moment uh when not only uh anti-racism and decoloniality but also like xenophobia and white supremacy are um increasingly playing a role in shaping public debate uh in the arts and sort of elsewhere mm. sometimes i've been asked if I see myself as an activist or a political artist since I tend to come back to questions about the 1930s and nationalism but I don't think that I would call me that since then I think you have to take a more active role it's more like shining light on it but I also think um, if I look at some of if I look at that carpet which has um Uh, the, sw- the swastika uh, in the light of a Swedish party it feels like I've been wondering if I would do it today I feel like the piles the yarns maybe should be, shouldn't be that long it's like history is going back to its roots or to, die, to, to today is going back to um, that time with the xenophobia and the racism and uh, if it, that work would be done again maybe the pattern is there uh, should be more obvious you mm. maybe you should see it faster because we're going in the wrong direction so they say i don't know who said it but that history doesn't reveal itself but man do a man does um, and uh, in this sense i think we're going that way But can I say something mm. to Yes. Since I've been wanting to I'm dealing with these questions also I think um on the basis of what I'm like as a person. And um of course interested in history, my family's history and one of those just personalities which all always uh, and I always had sort of a guilty conscience about a lot of things, almost like everything. It's like part of my personality. And then when it comes in combination being like a third generation German, um, where if you're a third generation, maybe you want to remember, like my dad, second generation, wanted to forget. My grandfather and grandmother, they tried to survive. Um, So the time has come with the distance that it's time to, for me to remember. Also, of course, all the horrible things But I also come to a point, uh, and sometimes it feels like it still feels like it's hard to talk about it. That am I am I allowed to? It's like looking into the personal side of my father. He was eight when the war ended, but being able to look at him or his parents as individual victims of their time, and uh, that also has an origin of. Uh, One of my favorite books of is of the Swedish author Stig Dagerman, who wrote uh, wrote Tuskus, this German autumn. It's translated into English now as well. Uh, and he was a young journalist who went to Germany in 1946 to write about um, 
a Germany in ruins and look how people lived there. And he was one of the few at the time that insisted on letting a person, one individual, to be a victim uh, and refusing to put this collective guilt on everyone. And I think it would be interesting to be able to talk about that. The time has passed that you can have that, that can be part of the discussion without taking light of the Holocaust and the giant traumas and um, um, that it's that you can have a discussion. That's basically what I'm trying to do with my mm. dad. It's a very personal thing for him and me, and it's been um, it hasn't always been easy in the relation or the discussions between us because I'm more interested in his history that he is himself. He moved on a long time ago and I keep bringing it back. <laughs> he made a very conscious decision. I'm moving on. It's not nostalgic. <laughs> it's no uh, nostalgic is really the, right, uh, the wrong word, but he doesn't look back. But still, uh, it's uh, we talked about that at the show because it's one work is about that. Even though if you consciously, uh, theoretically, wants to move on, you have your body remembers. If he hears a big bang, his body freezes and he's back to the bombings and the shelters, the bomb shelters. Um, so that's, so at that time, I made a work where I did the casts of his sensory organs, the nose, the smell, uh, and the, the ear, the, the fingertip, the eyelid, mouth. Um, almost as um, as trying to get something physical because I got I don't really get uh, further into the questions or it's his memories and it's really hard to take them over. Uh, but you really have to try. That's why I think it's so important to get into you have these dialogues with other people to try to understand their memories. You have to go deep into their stories and then somehow uh, hopefully uh, make it into my story or a story relevant to others a general story is this sort of the direction that your work is taking now sort of it seems like that mm. i was quite curious when i was um, invited to do this exhibition at bonniers where they insisted to call it a retrospective <laughs> since we don't have a good word in Swedish. We don't have the word mid-career. You can say mitt i livet, utställning. Uh, and it was hard to grasp uh, the notion of retrospective. What does it mean? But after a while, I thought it was, it's been really, really nice because it's boxed these 20 years and given me an understanding of I what, I, what I've done and where it's led up to. Um, but it also surprised me because I thought making this one, it's almost like packaging something and then you can box it. So maybe I reached somewhere where I don't have to do more because <laughs> in a way it was uh, quite fulfilling for me. I understood, understood more about my practice and it felt like if I want to, I don't have to do more work. I mean, the art world survives without more works from me, <laughs> obviously. But... Um, but then uh, I think it's been the other, um, the other side of it. 
as you asked, that I think it's open to another chapter of it. And I think I have to accept it for part of me that I may I, I have to be done with this thing with Germany. It's um, it's been with me for such a long time, but I think it's I. I looked upon the 1930s and bigger stories about the nature and and all that that has has had quite a distance from me in a way. It's been my interest, but it hasn't been super personal. But it's becoming more and more personal, borderline private. If you look at it mm. from my dad's perspective, so that's a um, hard line, I think. Because um, I really, <laughs> of course, don't want to do anything that makes him uneasy, especially not when he's over eighty. Um, so I think. Um, but the, it's getting it's getting more and more personal for me, and hopefully that can also be. I mean, personal starting points. Hopefully, they can also be yeah, general for a lot of people. Like this um, uh, thing with um, me looking back into my dad's history and um, his trauma as a child, because they had to flee uh, from the eastern parts of Germany, which became Polish area and leave a family farm that they had for 250 years. And yes, that's a that's a personal family history, but it's only one of millions. They say it was about 10 to 40 million civilian Germans who had to relocate because of the changing borders after the Potsdam conference after the war. Thank you. Um, I think that that's a good place to stop. Um, thanks so much for coming and talking to us. This was great. Thank you. It felt like I only just started. <laughs> <laughs> like thank you, you said, endings and beginnings can often feel the same. Yeah, exactly. Mama, thank you so much. Um, it was really nice, nice meeting you, and I'm happy you wanted to talk. We recorded this at InterArt Center in Malmo, Lund University's interdisciplinary platform for artistic research. Many thanks to InterArt Center's director, Christian Skolberg Jensen, and Jonas Jönsson for technical assistance. And thank you to the City of Malmo for funding this season of the podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, as well as on the InterArt Center's website, iac.lu.se. If you enjoyed the show, please like the episode, subscribe, or leave us a review. Or if you have questions or comments or just like to get in touch, send us a message at critical.dialogues, D-I-A-L-O-G-S, at gmail.com, or find us on Facebook or Instagram. This has been Critical Dialogues. Thanks for listening.